Welcome to The Workplace, where we talk about the cultures we work in and how to make them better for everyone. I'm Andrew Scarcella. This episode, we're talking with Stefano Mastro Giacomo about how to take your teams to the next level. From creating cross-functional diversity and psychological safety to surfing the thin lines separating collaboration and conflict, Stefano is our fearless guide to the sometimes frustrating but always rewarding world of working together. Join us after the interview for Tangible Takeaways, where we'll talk about the ideas and actions we can take with us and implement in our own workplace cultures. Stefano Mastro Giacomo is a project management professor, consultant, and author who has been leading digital projects and advising project teams in international organizations for more than 20 years. He has a master's and a PhD in organization and business information systems from the University of Lausanne in Switzerland, and has spent his professional life trying to understand human coordination and help teams at the highest levels work together better. His latest contribution to the cause is a book he co-authored with fellow business theorist Alex Osterwalder, entitled High Impact Tools for Teams. Five Tools to Align Team Members, Build Trust, and Get Results Fast. Stefano was interviewed by me, and he's the perfect person to round out Season 3, because work is at a tipping point right now, and it's hard to tell which way it's leaning. Will hybrid strategies take over, or will there be a slow march back to the status quo? Either way, teams will be at the center of it all, and they're going to need all the help they can get. Stefano, welcome to the workplace. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, you're coming to us from across the pond. You're in Switzerland right now? Absolutely. I live uh, close to Geneva, actually, near to the shores of Lake Geneva. Oh, very cool. So, right now, you are a consultant, you're a professor, and you're an author. You have a new book. But I'm guessing you weren't always all of those things. What was the first job that you ever had? My first job? Well, that was a long time ago. Um, I was an I, I've been hired as an application developer, a collaborative application developer at Caterpillar in Geneva. Mm. Yeah, they have their, their EMEA headquarters here. And um, it's one of my most pleasant working experience I have yet. What was the culture like there? Do you remember? Yes, of course, I remember. Um, it was, at least at the time, I don't know if things have changed, but it's, it's one of these organizations with a strong engineering culture due to all the machinery and working with engineers, uh, proud of their machines and the things they were doing around the world. Um, made that a very pleasant experience. It was a very highly collaborative environment. And because I was absolutely at the lowest level of the hierarchical ladder, there was real collaboration. <laughs> so absolutely no competition <laughs> among colleagues. And uh, we did some amazing work there. Yeah, it's been a, a fantastic experience. Well, that's cool. Um, was that your first 
professional job or did you have a job when you were a kid? Ah, no, that was my first professional job after yeah. I graduated. Um, now, if you want the truth, uh, my very first job, um, um, I, I was when I was 14 years old. Oh. And I was uh, planting potatoes in a field. <laughs> you were a farmer. So I did that like to have so, to have some pocket money with the local farmer. So I helped there during my holidays. I <laughs> that wonder was if my very first paid job. I wonder if there is any workplace culture there. I mean, it's hardly a workplace if you're out in a field, but uh, I guess it still applies, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was uh, my first paid job ever. You're not allowed to uh, work before you're 14 here. Mm. That was my case, and as soon as I wanted to buy a, a, a new uh, a new cycle, <laughs> so mm-hmm. I, I, I went uh, around. I was living. I was not born in the Geneva area. I was born uh, in the countryside, and uh, that w- the job opportunities were quite limited. So either you went to the local farmer, <laughs> or because uh, you know we have a, a huge watch industry in Switzerland, there were also some. Uh, watch manufacturers there. And then after a while, I realized that in the watch industry, they paid a little better. Mm. So whenever I had holidays and free time, then I applied for positions and and summer jobs in the watch industry. And uh, then I discovered also what it means to work behind like these machines that uh, make the beautiful Swiss watches. Yeah, that is the... uh the most Swiss job I could possibly imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I went there <laughs> several years, actually. Oh, very cool. And look how far you've come from planting potatoes to <laughs> an author. Uh, your latest book is High Impact Tools for Teams, Five Tools to Align Team Members, Build Trust, and Get Results Fast which you co-wrote with Alex Osterwalder, the founder of Strategizer. Tell me how this book came about. Was it a result of all the change and chaos precipitated by the pandemic, or did it start earlier than that? What was the genesis for this? No, that book actually started a long time ago, uh, more than 15 years ago. I joined... um, it was a, actually my next job after Caterpillar. I joined um, a bank. It was the early days of the internet. And we, I, I had the pleasure to contribute to the creation of the whole online presence from A to Z, like the banking apps, the website in multiple languages, and so on. And that's when I discovered cross-functional work, for real, like going from one department to the other. and. During that period, uh, I was heading that digital team. I realized that at some recurring moments in time, we always had some recurring problems. And to be more specific, I had that feeling that in meetings, people would agree and say, yes, okay, okay, but their body language (laughs) would kind of present the opposite, (laughs) Mm -hmm. or even show a lack of attention. And I was thinking, but what's the the strength of these agreements? And the idea came in my mind that project success and failure was somehow related to the quality of our meetings. Mm 
And I've been discussing about that with um, a colleague who was at the university, a professor of psychology, and he said, why don't you do a PhD on that? And here we go. You have this uh, uh, student, well, graduate in business administration and computer science entering the field of psychology mm. to understand what's happening in meetings to do a PhD on distributed teamwork. And progressively, I entered a, a journey that lasts for uh, 15 years, extremely focused on understanding team dynamics and the impact of communication on, pro of pro on project success and failure. Then five or six years ago, with a having a discussion with Alex um, uh, Osterwalder, we realized that um, most of the projects we were dealing with were considered and are considered today as innovation journeys. We were creating things that were done for the very first time in, that, in, the, in our context in these organizations. And we realized also that um, we had more and more tools and methods to manage the product side or the service side of innovation journeys. And we just have like so many beautiful things out there. But we thought that there was something we could do to also help manage the human side of the innovation journeys. Because these journeys are, I mean, innovation is delivered by people. And um, if you look at our typical and usual management practices, they're mostly inherited from the military and engineering. And um, since I had that PhD uh, where I applied psycholinguistics to project management, we thought, okay, let's try to experiment a new series of tools we could put in the hands of every team member so that um, we start managing also these human aspects, namely, uh, are we on the same page? Are we aligned? Or uh, what about the behaviors uh, we should have in, in this new project, in this new adventure we never had? What about managing conflict? Uh, and so on and so on. And we started experimenting and designing tools uh, with this intention. And uh, six, seven years later, uh, we had a, a tool set of, I see the, the tools presented in the book as a series of plugins that work with any method. The idea is to empower every team member. We believe that with the complexity of the challenges we have had, who is going to solve the problem of the pandemic, who is going to solve global warming, who is going to, et cetera, et cetera. Well, it, the, the best leader and manager in the world is not one person, it's the team, mm -hmm. especially uh, because we have to rely on so many different uh, uh, skills today to tackle these complex uh, problems and challenges. So we said we, we have like to develop a Swiss army knife <laughs> for <laughs> everyone so that it becomes a collective responsibility to manage our team and get to the success we want uh, for our challenge or project. And now five tools are out there. We've been testing these intensively. We first developed these for ourselves, for our own practice and for our own teams. And then we realized that people around us were using them as well. 
and so on and so on. So it's a typical bottom-up uh, approach. So you, you were the guinea program. pigs for your own ideas, your own tools. Oh, completely. Um, you know, uh, the, first, the first tool that really was developed was the team alignment map. Mm. And I developed it because I started sketching it because if you go through a, a project management training or certification, you will see that you have to learn different types of processes and templates to make a project work. Now, communication is considered as one process among many others. So you have procurement, maybe, uh, uh, I don't know, setting objectives and so on. Actually, um, it's not the case. Communication is not, um, is not a process like any other. It's the, the process that enables all the others. Absolutely. So if you, you go can't to the Latin, not have that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. If we stop talking now, <laughs> we won't have much in common in 20 minutes. Because communication, if you look at the Latin roots, it's to put in common. Mm -hmm. Uh, and um, I was thinking that there, was, there were some bugs here and there in terms of mutual understanding. The fact of being on the same page. So while I was still, uh, while I was still applying my beautiful project management tools, I, I've been developing that tool that gives communication a boost to make sure that we're on the same page so that we all understand how we're going to contribute to the challenge and what others' contribution will be so that we can align together and coordinate. This is a very important word. And uh, so that was the beginning of the journey. Um, like um, not replace the existing tools, but like have here and there where I saw certain problems uh, develop a, a simple tools that everyone could use, but I started using them myself with my own teams. Mm. Yeah, and these tools are for everyone. I, I really like that this, all the ideas in this book are for not just team leaders, because there are so many people making recommendations for how to lead and things for leaders, but this is for team members as well. It can be anyone in the team can use these tools to you know, improve their team alignment, improve their collaboration, improve their communication, right? And I think that is perhaps what can really start change, right? Like you said, from the bottom up versus trying to have some sort of trickle-down idea, which doesn't really work. <laughs> Andrew, absolutely. Go back to Peter Drucker. Uh, I still remember that quote where he was saying, um, a knowledge worker cannot be managed. He can only be helped. And, you know, what does that mean? It means that if you and me partner because you're a specialist of X and I'm a specialist of Y, I mean, I don't know what you do. You don't know what I do. But we need each other to find the solution. So the idea is to improve the quality of our interactions between specialists and get away from that model of a centralized coordination in the hands of one person. I'm a strong believer in the network approach. But the idea is there that we have to equip super quickly with the right skills, um, everyone. 
And uh, I've never been trained really in communication. What does it mean to understand each other? What is mutual understanding? How do we make sure that we're on the same page? What is coordination? What is a relationship, by the way? And why does it matter for the performance of a project and, uh, and, and for innovation? You know, all these basic things. So that's, why, that's what we try to, um, to, to, to crystallize, if I may say, in these tools, doing an important interdisciplinary journey. So we looked at many, many, many different disciplines, going from psycholinguistics to evolutionary anthropology, all fields that have very important things to say with beautiful concepts that didn't make it to the practice in management, to the practice level. So that's what we try to do in these tools. I think one of the most interesting issues that you tackle with regards to communication is asynchronous communication, right? And I know you started this, this, uh, the ideas from this book 15 years ago, but asynchronous communication is now an essential skill set. We have remote and hybrid workforces. Uh, we have international workforces, people working, you know, in different time zones. So... I'm wondering if you have any um, recommendations, rules, guidelines, things that people can turn to to help make asynchronous communication flow as seamlessly or close to as seamlessly as face-to-face. -face. There is a lot in your question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I apologize. So, uh, let, let me <laughs> take the points one by one. It's a beautiful question. So let's start first with the background. Uh, I did my PhD in distributed teamwork already when it was emergent. And um, a lot of the practices that we're discovering now uh, during the pandemic and the tools and the platforms uh, have been around for quite some time. What has changed recently is the number of people who had to move to these platforms at the speed of light. So that is the big change. Um, but these have been around for some while. So now, two things. First, um, Let's differentiate synchronous and asynchronous. So for synchronous is when we're alive together and uh, we can talk and we can take turns and I can ask questions and you respond and we can repair misunderstanding. That's face-to-face. Uh, -face. If you Google media richness theory, um, you will find a beautiful Wikipedia page explaining that uh, all communication channels have different properties. And some have a higher bandwidth than others. So um, the highest bandwidth in the world, the, the best communication platform in the world, is face-to-face -face in right. the same room dialogue. And it has not been beaten yet by any other channel. That's our default communication mode. Now, all other communication channels present some obstacles in some ways. So either you miss contextual information or awareness information of what's going on around the room, or you miss the verbal, uh, the nonverbal. Uh, right. On Zoom, you can't see people's hands as much. Exactly, or the rest of the body, and you mm -hmm. cannot see who's talking to whom in a room, <laughs> for example. Okay, so there are plenty of things like that that create a sort of hierarchy in terms of bandwidth. So at the top, you have face-to-face. -face. At the bottom, you have 
text messaging. Why? Because there is a lot of ambiguity in a message and you miss all the rest of the information. Now, um, during the pandemic, uh, we've been working uh, a lot uh, with uh, online teams. Actually, most of our, at least my work has been done online since yeah, the beginning too. of March. And there is um, one thing that surprised me and we just, we just published a blog post on strategizer.com last week, I guess, yeah, about smart channel selection. So this is the big mistake we've seen during the pandemic. Um, some participants, some team members, would call meetings just for um, updates. So you are in a meeting, everyone is on Zoom, time is precious, and you hear things like, uh, this week we had no problem, we performed quality tests, everything went well, I'll go through the points of the checklist, and there are 15 points, and they go one by one. Okay, that's a mistake, <laughs> to use such a rich bandwidth just for an update. For that, you better use something you send and that people can access when they want, which is an asynchronous communication channel. The, the contrary is, is true as well. Um, we see, we've seen people in teams using um, chat rooms to launch big projects and coordinate on projects. So things like uh, uh, at Anne, at Bob, at Cliff, call on, uh, client is asking, <laughs> yeah, at everyone, client is asking for new features to be developed by the end of the month, it's urgent, all the documents are on the shared drive, thanks. Now, <laughs> um, I have No room that. for questions, right, just uh, here's no, everything I mean, you it's need. just like there, yeah, and then just go. Um, no, uh, it doesn't, humans do not work like that. Um, when we engage in a joint activity with other people, that's when the need for alignment is the highest because we are not all wired on the same brain. <laughs> so there not has yet. to be, <laughs> so if you wish, the yeah, one other way uh, to describe alignment is the amount of perception gaps. So when we start a new project, the amount of perception gap is the highest. So you don't want to use a low bandwidth channel to launch a complex activity with people seeing the world differently. So you may want to benefit from the high bandwidth channel. So this is a, the kind of a, a problem we've seen during the pandemic. It's this idea of uh, having this multiplication of channels, but like that are not used. What's the point if they're not used effectively? And the recommendation we, we, we issue is really use high bandwidth channels for complex problem solving, to initiate new activities, uh, to manage emotional situations. Don't put in a, in a Slack channel, stop criticizing me. Just call the person <laughs> or do a, a video call. Um, and that will um, allow this initial alignment, this boost of initial alignment that helps us become on the same page and coordinate together. Now, use 
asynchronous channels uh, like email, messaging, text messages for updates. Once the initial alignment is created, we don't need all that richness to, to continue our work because we were kind of on the same page. So if you want to share updates, notify about changes, or uh, just signal some stuff about any recurring task, just do that in an asynchronous way so that people can benefit from the autonomy of organizing their time and being productive on other tasks. That's the, that's the idea. This is probably one of the big lessons learned during the pandemic. There is another lesson learned during the pandemic, working online with teams. Again, remember that nothing equals face-to-face -face, and we just lost that. We lost our primary means of coordinating. Yeah, as we human. lost the highest bandwidth thing we've got. Yeah, you know, we, we lost it. So deal with luckily, what we do have. Luckily, there has been moments where I came close to the feeling of being in the same room. So it's true, video conferencing is number two in the hierarchy, but video conferencing alone is not enough. Video conferencing needs a visual space on which we can build, construct, point, display things together. So there is a new entrant today in the collaborative technologies landscape Basically, what we have been doing for years in terms of collaborative technologies is communicate in all sorts of ways. It's share files and manage tasks. <laughs> but there is a new entrant now, which is all these series of applications that do brainstorming online, brainstorming spaces. So it's complex problem-solving apps. And among these, you have the generic ones, Miro.com, Mural.com. And more specific ones, like the Strategizer app, InVision, it depends on the type of things you do. Now, the perfect combination we've seen uh, that brings the best results, now that we've lost the face-to-face, -face, is video conferencing plus a digital whiteboards and visual facilitation. Hmm. So if you couple these two things and you use visual tools to prepare your meetings and so on, you get very, very high... I, at least in, my, in our experience, to get super high productivity online. I feel like I need to have you come and talk to both of my bosses because we've done, we've done some of that, right? But I don't know if we do it enough. Sometimes it feels like too many things happening at once, right? Like when you're in a room, you're like, okay, we have a whiteboard. You know, we're all here together. It seems very natural. But when you've got multiple you know, apps or something you need to use simultaneously, Sometimes people are like, well, let's just, we'll just talk it through. We'll just talk it through, you know, and, and you lose some of that, that functionality, that connection, right? That's true. And um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure we are close to compete with face-to-face, -face. again, for complex problem solving. That's why we have war rooms, <laughs> task forces, where do they meet? You know, imagine the scientist solving uh, developing a, a vaccine, doing that just by SMS, by short messaging. I mean, just like you, now you, you, you feel the pain of the short communication part. Okay, so face-to-face -face is and remain the jewel uh, of the crown. Now, again, if you, if you don't have that, the second option, this notion of video conferencing, digital board prepared, implies that people are trained. 
mm. tools shouldn't be an obstacle anymore. So um, when I started working online with a lot of teams uh, early in March, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was doing the mistake of inviting everyone uh, online, sending these links, presupposing that they would be okay, and that it was not. Actually, I, I had some quite difficult moments to manage where people were feeling uncomfortable managing the mouse, and that was not good for their own image in front of the rest of the team. You know, so I did some mistakes there. So now there is no way I start a workshop or something online without onboarding properly people before. So it's also a, 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 skills, a skills challenge. Uh, not everyone is familiar with these tools. Uh, we also have our digital routines with emails, you know, uh, and, and, and all sorts of tools we might, applications we might use in our organizations. And if you want to benefit from the power of what is available today, this is not science fiction, people have to be onboarded properly. So that when we solve problems together online, the meeting time remains a quality time. And, and, and everyone can focus their brain on the problem and not on the tools. Mm. And I see an onboarding uh, problem here uh, in many places. All of these tools, uh, these communication tools, are you know, here to help us build consensus, get on the same page, you know, understand each other. Consensus is hard, though, uh, to achieve, uh, no matter how many tools you have. I think it's because people are just reluctant to take a position, stick their neck out, take a risk. Um, what can we do to help our teammates feel more comfortable doing that? Here there is a, there is a, a bit of explanation before we jump on the tool. Uh, when people don't speak up, and, and this is one of, uh, one of the most important discoveries I made in teamwork is the work of Amy Edmondson at Harvard Business School on psychological safety. Uh, psychological safety is uh, this idea that the team is a safe place for me. It's the atmosphere you feel when you open the door of a team. Uh, what, the, what, what does it look like? Do people speak? How is the atmosphere, the ambience? It's a, it's a cousin of trust. Trust is the fact of being vulnerable, accepting the fact of being vulnerable. Psychological safety is the idea that the, the, the team is a safe place for me to take risks and that in case of problem, the team will support me. Well, what you just described is a typical situation where there is a lack of psychological safety. And when there is a lack of psychological safety, it's absolutely rational to stay silent. Why? Because we don't, we're not sure if it's a safe place. So we don't want to look intrusive, so we stay silent. We don't, we don't want to challenge maybe the status quo, so we stay silent. We don't want to look stupid, so we don't ask questions. There are a lot of reasons no. to not speak up. So <laughs> it's rational, it's rational, but that illustrates that trust is insufficient in that team. So we have to start looking at that situation the other way around. People are like that because this is missing. So better create that before or do what it takes to, f to foster psychological safety before you start seeing the magic of collective intelligence happening because people's ideas cross-pollinate each other and then you enter into the learning, typical learning processes 
where we learn from mistakes and so on and so on, and then we start solving complex problems. But the, 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 the origin is the presence of psychological safety. And to do that, um, uh, there are, of course, this is a complex thing, but we, we, we all get, again, with this obsession of having a simple tool that we can put in the hands of everybody, um, we de developed uh, a poster called the team contract. Mm -hmm. And for example, I never start a project now uh, or join an existing team without doing a team contract first. So a team contract is a big round inside a square. Inside the round you have in, inside, outside you have out. And basically what we do when we do a team contract session, it's, it's quite fast. We respond to two questions. One, together, it's important. What are the rules and behaviors that we want to abide by in our team? And two, as individuals, do we have preferences to work in a certain way? If you do that in the beginning, together, and then we discuss our individual preferences, what we, uh, uh, the type of behaviors, who's making decisions, and so on, you start entering into a fair process, a fair process where the rules of the game are transparent for everybody. And the fact that we've been discussing these together and agreeing or not, um, once we reach a level of agreement, there are many benefits. One, we stop presupposing what others presuppose <laughs> also. And it's out there. It's explicit. It's on the wall. Two, it's proven uh, uh, from uh, anthropological work that uh, the fact of agreeing together on something creates a kind of moral obligation. Hmm. So it's not a legal contract, it's a moral contract. It's very light. But at least we have something that is binding us now on the relationship uh, side. And also, you know, uh, I can understand the difference or the differences in your ways of working and my ways of working or my ways of behaving, your ways of behaving since the beginning. We put a lot of emphasis today on cross-functional and diverse teams. Beautiful. That's the teams I work with every day. Uh, and they deliver what they're supposed to deliver in terms of creativity. Now, the counterpart, the, 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 counter, the other side of this is, a, is an increased potential for friction. If everyone, you have all this beautiful diversity in front of you and we don't take time to agree just a little bit and we start just like entering the work, without this uh, discussion in terms of uh, rules of the game between us, then actually you, you've just created a, 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 a potential uh, situation for problems. And that happens. So what, you know, um, I've been practicing the team contract for a couple of years now, and it's a big difference to start working in a cross-functional, cross-functional, cross-cultural, diverse team with or without having had that conversation at the beginning. So one of my favorite things about this book is that every section sort of ends with a series of pro tips. And I'm curious, do you have a favorite pro tip from the entire book or do you love them all equally like your children? 
no, no, I don't love them equally like my children. I mean, these are very practical tips. But there are some of them with which I have an emotional connection. And there is mm -hmm. one in particular, that's true. So there is another tool uh, called the Fact Finder, which we developed to, to help us all ask good questions. Good questions is the idea that uh, when I'm lost in the conversation, I can ask a question that really reduces the perception gaps between you and me. You're and talking about my job, I think, understand your right point now. of view. <laughs> so now, um, in the section of the Fact Finder, there is a, a pro tips section, and there is one in particular uh, that saved my life many times, uh, which is stop arguing and ask a good question. <laughs> Mm. Uh, <laughs> that saves a lot of energy. I have many beautiful examples I could share where um, you know you feel maybe challenged by someone and you want to enter into a long explanation and explain all the backgrounds, all the story, what happened and why we're here and so on. And um, many, many situations you can just return the favor <laughs> by asking why, <laughs> you know. Uh, another question, and that saves energy, uh, and that uh, helped in many, many difficult situations. Stop arguing, ask questions to save energy. I'm going to steal that one. So, man, there's so much to unpack in this book, but I'm curious, what's next? After this, what are you working on for future, future books, future tools? What's coming up? There is something cooking, so... In the oven, it's uh, it's uh, it's still, of course, work in progress. But um, you can be KG. Um, you know, collaboration and conflict are part of everyday life, everyday work, everyday life. Yeah, I mean, and we tend often to separate them. Um, no, it's a yin and yang thing. So I'm interested also now in, into a bit investigating a bit more the dark side, <laughs> uh, which is conflict, and especially uh, internal politics. And so the code name for what's coming is surfing internal politics. <laughs> That's <laughs> the idea. What can we do here to help us navigate, protect, and also lower the level of internal politics when actually when you have that level of uh, a high level of politics, you're no longer in, in collaboration, you're in competition. So uh, the idea is, okay, how far can we go uh, in developing very specific tools just for that? Like when the situation is very competitive, while we are supposed to collaborate, how far can we go in creating tools for everyone to bring back the situation or the team into the collaborative space. If you could snap your fingers and remove a corporate buzzword or phrase from the universe, what would it be? Um, definitely potential synergies. Yeah. That's a great buzzword. That's <laughs> yeah, potential synergies. Yeah, but uh, I mean, I hear that a lot. And I still, uh, I don't know, in 40 years of uh, work activity, I haven't understood what that means. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll try to kill it. I'll try to kill it anytime I hear it. Potential synergies. <laughs> Who are your heroes? Oh, um... 
Am I allowed to speak uh, honestly? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I have a couple of friends who are fighting diseases, and they're, they're my heroes for now. Yeah, really, uh, the courage they display every day is just like uh, an amazing example for me. Oh, man, that, uh, that hits home. I know how you feel. <laughs> Who are your villains? Uh, I never thought in, it in these terms, but if I had to point villains, I would say manipulators. <laughs> I mm -hmm. went through <laughs> some, uh, some, some, some experiences, and uh, no, uh, no, I don't like this idea. And I don't. Uh, I'm not you don't have to name names. <laughs> they know who they know who they are. <laughs> uh, who was the best boss you ever had, and why were they so great? Um, the best boss I ever had, yes, um, a former basketball coach. Yeah. Um, he, he had that perfect position of putting pressure on us to, to get results with, not, with, beautiful, with beautiful challenges. So there was a lot of pressure, but in the same time, he was coaching us to get there, but he was not doing our work. So he was he was really behaving like I, I, I'm a former basketball player myself. So I, yeah, I mean the, the, this great coaching position um, definitely. Uh, um, but I in my entire career I had only one manager like that. I must admit. Huh? So you're you are the best boss you've ever had, basically. <laughs> well, now I'm independent, so I better be my best boss. Otherwise, I have a problem with myself. <laughs> What's the last thing you read that stuck with you? The last thing I read that stuck with me. Oh, the, we've been talking about it. Um, uh, it's uh, the fearless organi organization from Amy Edmondson. Mm. Um, um, that professor who developed the concept of psychological safety. Um, amazing book with um, great insights on uh, this idea of trust and relationships in the team and how to, uh, and how to improve that, uh, gain higher levels of psychological safety in the teams. I, she made me realize the direct impact of trust on innovation. You know, you know now, now it's established. I mean, Google wrote a lot about it. And you know, I don't know if you know, but it's Google's HR principle number one. Oh. They, run a, they run a big study internally called the Project Aristotle. Where oh, they, I heard of that. Yeah, where they, they, try, they try to understand the perfect team. So, of course, data, it's a data company. They did correlations about age, skills level, uh, cultural backgrounds, and so on. And they didn't find, uh, uh, when they looked at the best performing teams, nothing of, nothing of the typical correlation of what you would imagine worked. The only variable that seemed to be common to the highest performing teams was the perceived psychological safety from team members. So... Amy Edmondson, the fearless, the fearless organization. 
So before we go, I want to know how can people get your book and where can they go to get in touch with you? Uh, the book is available on major online bookstores, High Impact Tools for Teams, also on strategizer.com. And if you want to download the tools or find out, find out more, because we, we publish uh, articles regularly, uh, go on strategizer.com or on my blog, <laughs> teamalignment.co. Not .com, teamalignment.co. Well, Stefano, again, thank you so much for coming on The Workplace and sharing all your ideas. I feel like we're going to have to have you back because we didn't get to everything. <laughs> but it's been great talking with you. Thank you. Uh, I love the conversation. Thank you for having me. tangible takeaways, where we take big ideas on a nature walk in the local game refuge. Passing a pair of magnesium-bodied Zeiss Victory SF binoculars back and forth while we spot songbirds at 500 yards, black cap, blue-gray back, cinnamon-colored belly, a red-breasted nuthatch, printing his feathers, singing his little birdie heart out, just for us. No? He's singing to another nuthatch on that nearby birch. Good for you, buddy, putting yourself out there like that. The first is to embrace the concept of a team contract. Not just writing down the unspoken rules already in place, no. A true team contract is co-defined and consists of two questions. What are the rules and behaviors we want to abide by as a team? And as individuals, do we have preferences for working in a certain way? In as little as five minutes, you'll have an explicit, shared agreement of how you want to work together and why. There's no better foundation for great teamwork. The second is that when there's a conflict within your team, don't argue, ask better questions. Too often, people are more concerned about the background to a conflict, or who's at fault, than what the way forward is. So instead of playing detective, try being a crisis negotiator, probing for solutions and offering suggestions. It can be hard to stay constructive in a conflict, but all the best teams do it, and so can you. The third is a question. What's the ideal size for a team? Six? Ten? Twenty? Two? Two hundred? The word team is used to describe all manner, shape, and size of groups working together with little or no regard for consistency. Who's the authority on this? Well, 
Catherine Klein of the Wharton School at UPenn fits the bill, and her research suggests that the ideal size for a working team is five people. More than that, an individual performance drops. Less than that, and skills gaps start to appear and team dynamics suffer. But I'm willing to bet that most of us are part of a team that's well over five people. My own is practically a baker's dozen. Should we chop all teams into tinier teams? Maybe. But the real takeaway here isn't to judge a team by its size, but by the dynamics and culture that drive them. As always, this episode was written and produced by yours truly, with original music, sound design, and additional writing by Daniel Foster Smith. If you liked this episode, or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and of course, subscribe to The Workplace on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a burning question about workplace culture or a story about why your workplace culture is the best or worst, send it to theworkplace at octanner.com. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. O.C. Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single modular suite of apps for influencing and improving employee experiences through recognition, career anniversaries, well-being, leadership, and more. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, go to octanner.com. <laughs>